Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. 2020 seems to be the, the year of anger. Everybody's angry, angry at someone, something. We're all, of course, angry, or most of us are angry at Trump. Other people are angry at Black Lives Matter, angry at our our corporations, our capitalism, our lack of corporations, our lack of capitalism, our jobs, our lack of jobs. Anger seems to be the defining characteristic of our age, such a defining characteristic that um, Eric Lonergan, who's a a London-based economist, has co-authored a new book called Angrynomics. Eric, are you trying to uh, quantify Anger is angrynomics uh, a sister subject to economics? Uh, well, that's a, that's a great question, Andrew. And uh, no, we're not trying to quantify it. But what we're trying to do is give people a, a lexicon, give people a vocabulary for making sense of anger. So, if you're anything like me, before I start embarked on writing this book. You know what anger is because every human being knows what anger is. Children know what anger is. And yet we're very inarticulate when it comes to explaining anger. So I, for one, have never really thought, why do humans get angry? What function does anger serve? It's a very, very odd and misunderstood emotion. What function does it serve? Is there good anger? Is there bad anger? This is that's that's really what we've tried to answer here. And we think it's a subject that's covered uh, across many, many disciplines. And we've tried to synthesize this diverse body of work on anger into an accessible lexicon, which we think is then a lens that helps one make sense of what's happening in the world. What what I like about your book, Angrynomics, Eric, though, is that you and your co-author, Mark Blythe, are not... uh dry, bloodless quantifiers of anger. You're not in the business of of creating data and statistics around it. The book itself is a kind of Socratic dialogue between you and Mark. And you try to, so to speak, get under the skin of anger. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. And I'm really glad that you enjoyed the dialogue dimension because this was an area... We faced an awful lot of resistance with publishers. Publishers were are very reluctant to to print dialogues, um, and they wanted us to convert it from a dialogue into a kind of standard book, if you will. And we had transcribed discussions. So the genesis of the book is actually discussions and arguments that Mark and I had had, which we recorded and transcribed. And we wanted to maintain that sense of dynamism, the scope for disagreement the kind of questioning where you can go, what exactly do you mean by that? Or does that make sense where you can summarize to make it more engaging? Yeah, I think it's a great point. And actually, uh, one of the things that I like about the book is the civility between the two of you. You don't always agree about everything. But the one thing 
missing from angrynomics is anger. And I think your point about publishing is a good one. Um, publishers are falling into the same angrynomics trap as everyone. They're looking for books which are angry, written by people who are outraged by something. Yeah. But let's come back to 2020. Of course, anger is not a, a new phenomenon. Throughout history, people have been angry. But is there something about our contemporary age, and particularly 2020, that makes it the age of anger, the year of anger? I think there is. And this is one of the themes in the book, which is why, in a sense, has anger become a motivating fuse for our politics? And when we reference a number of the kind of leading light um, populace of the current era, um, and why is it that they are so keen to exploit anger? And I think that dimension of it isn't a coincidence. So anger has always existed, will always exist, but it is being exploited for very particular purposes currently. And, and the main thesis we put forward there is that there has been, for some interesting reasons, a loss of political identity. So one of the features of the end of the Cold War is and the era of neoliberalism, if for want of a better term, is that this sort of consensus of, sort of around free market capitalism, technocracy, independent central banks, where all developed countries were kind of following the same route. It didn't really matter who your government was, you had the same policies. This resulted in a, in a loss of political meaning, political motivation. And yet, in a sense, the population became disinterested. But the political class still needs to get elected. And anger is an electoral strategy. Because you can see in the work in political science, angry people are more likely to vote. Elections are, most elections now are being settled by motivating a small minority. So Trump actually changed the voting patterns of 80,000 Americans in order to win the presidency. So it is about targeting with laser-like accuracy these little marginal constituencies and if you can trigger anger, it actually is a political strategy. Is that fair, though, Eric, completely? Of course, there is anger on the right. There is anger with the Trump supporters. One of the things that I was struck is recently, uh, earlier this uh, last week, uh, there was a video of some people painting over a Black Lives Matter mural um, just outside San Francisco. And what struck me about what they were doing but not the action itself, which was kind of childish and annoying, but that anger, they were so furious. So certainly you've captured it there. But is it fair to, to make this contrast between a, a technocratic, globalized coastal elite, you in London, me in California, New York, Paris, Berlin, and the angry masses? After all, the elites, the liberals are just as angry. Um, a few days ago, I had Brett Stevens, the conservative New York Times columnist on on the show. And I said to him, what's it like to, 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 to trend on Twitter? Because he seems to really get on the nerves of the liberals. And every time he comes out with a, a column, there's this eruption of anger from the left. So is it fair to just position anger on the right? No, no. I mean, you're absolutely right. And it's a great question. I think uh, anger, no one has a monopoly on anger. Anger is prevalent across social groups, societies, cultures, um, and identities. 
and spheres of human activity. I think it really helps, if I could, just, just maybe to outline some, some of the dimensions of, of the different types that we put forward, because I think- Absolutely, that, yeah, that would that be very helpful. Be, and, and the book does that very well. Yeah, and I think that gives us a kind of way of making sense of this. So the, the first distinction, we really make two distinctions. The first distinction is between public anger and private anger. And again, I should stress, you won't find this in the literature on anger. The literature on anger is covered in moral philosophy, social psychology, neuroscience, psychology, self-help. There's a very, very broad literature, which we, we kind of spend an awful lot of time going through. But we, And nowhere did we find a kind of synthesizing typology. And one thing that really struck us is there's a huge difference between public expressions of anger and private expressions of anger. Now, private expressions of anger are usually... Are, are quite proximate to shame or stress, right? So if you had a colleague who suddenly, or a good friend, family member, suddenly starts exhibiting a lot of anger, you might well take them to one side and say, is everything okay? Yeah, so in other words, anger in one's private life is usually indicative of some kind of internal distress, right? We, we don't automatically think if somebody with road rage, we don't automatically think there's a problem with the traffic. We, we think there's a problem with the individual who's, who's going slightly crazy. Right? But in the public sphere, it's very, very different. You know, if you stopped a, an angry protester at an Extinction Rebellion protest and took them to one side and said, you know, why are you angry? They're more likely to say to you, you know, why aren't you angry? You know, we're destroying our environment. We don't care about future generations. In other words, they have a righteous anger. They're almost, they almost wear their anger as a badge of honor. So this is the first major distinction between public expressions of anger and private ones. And then, if I may, within public anger, there's two very, very distinct types, which is almost the anger of angels and the anger of devils. The anger of angels is actually an idea that dates back to Aristotle and is probably the prevailing concept of anger, which is kind of moral outrage, indignation. It is a reaction to a sense of injustice or wrongdoing. And I, I don't know if you saw, there was a wonderful uh, interview with Cornell West on CNN, which you can see on YouTube. I know it went viral at one point. And Cornell West makes a great observation about what's happening with, with Black Lives Matter, is he said, what would it say about our society if people could witness police brutality like this and they didn't go onto the streets? demanding change, right? So and that's actually an Aristotelian idea, which is that anger is a kind of appropriate human response required to enforce our sense of justice, um, our, the enforcement of our norms. And that's the sort of the, the anger of angels. Now, the flip side of this, the mirror image, which came to me uh, when we did, we did a big data search and try to sort news stories based on anger. The second most frequent type of news story which cites anger refers to angry sports fans. Now, I suspect if you're like me, as soon as you say that, you go, well, of course, you know, did you really need to do a data search? It's so obvious. Right? We're all familiar if you go to a football match or a ball game or whatever, that there's a minority that get very angry. And I think this is. Well, really I have to. I have to jump in here, uh, yeah, Eric, and say that uh, you know, anger. Certainly, you're based in London. You know, really unpleasant anger is located quite close to where you're living uh, at, at, in, in in Arsenal Football Club. So 
some some clubs are, are worse than others, and Arsenal are significantly worse than any other club in the world. But that was just a little <laughs> Well, listen, you know, that's exactly right. I mean, I remember, you know, for the last two years, whilst we've been writing this book, I go to all these football matches and I can't resist studying the fans. I study the fans. And I went to the North London derby between Spurs and Arsenal. And just to, to some of the viewers who may not be familiar, you know, these are two incredibly passionate local rivalry that has existed, I mean, I don't know, at least for decades. And it reminded me of, nor- of, of going to Northern Ireland when I was a kid during the troubles in Northern Ireland, where there was literally British police on the street and there, there was, you know, terrorism. I mean, the, the palpable sense of violence and threat. I mean, I saw, you know, the, the police having to be kept separate on, on the, the carriages on the transport system. And one of the things that really intrigued me when I started to watch sports fans is that, is again, what function does this serve? And I realized their antagonism is not just aimed towards the opposition. It's also aimed towards their own. So they attack their own players for not being passionate, not having enough commitment. They will even they will attack their managers for, for letting them down and failing. And they will even express, try and enforce loyalty within the group. And I think this is a really interesting phenomenon that anger seems to play a role in enforcing group identity. So we have Eric, can we go back to this distinction yeah. you make between public and private? Because uh, you're Mr. Angrynomics, or you're not angry, but you are an expert on, on Angrynomics. And uh, let me suggest, I'm not the expert, but it occurred to me that one of the problems is that this distinction between the public and the private is essentially broken down. You you mentioned Aristotle, of course, uh, yeah. who was the philosopher of, of, of the public sphere. But isn't one of the reasons why we have so much anger is because people are not able to distinguish the public and the private anymore. Everyone essentially takes everything personally. Everyone mixes the two up. So... Uh, a perceived insult to one's color, one's gender, one's ethnicity, one's historical uh, legacy. These are all taken personally. And if we could only reestablish this clear distinction between the public and the private sphere, we might also be able to reduce anger. I mean, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, and I hadn't thought of it like that. Um, I think that's a very intriguing. I need to think about that some more. The only observation I would make is I tend to think a lot of those examples that you gave is that when you start to study this this tribal energy, our propensity to form groups, our desire for group identity, uh, it's very depressing. Um, you know, there's very interesting research done in social psychology dating back to the 1960s about, um, and this has now been confirmed within neuroscience, but they did studies in the 60s with, with children and would just give them arbitrary group distinctions. So literally put up the paintings of, you know, two, two, two different artists, Clay and Kandinsky, who likes Clay, who likes Kandinsky, separate the classroom into two groups. And you could literally get one group to 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 request harm against the other group. So we, we are clearly have a very, very strong propensity to form groups, 
to identify, and to be honest, we will identify based on spurious distinctions. So, and, and in neuroscience, they've literally said to people under brain scans, uh, you are now designated group X. And then this, what is your view of group Y? And without having any distinguishing characteristics. So literally by telling somebody you're in this group versus the other group, you will affect their behavior and thinking. So we don't even need to, in a sense, to have anything we care about to distinguish ourselves. If we're given any sense of allegiance, we become, we're, we're like, we have this instinctive reaction uh, to, to conform with it. And I think you're right. I think there's one of the things, I think there's a very clear distinction to me in the two types of anger, but it is very often the case that what starts as a sense of injustice becomes hijacked by a kind of tribal that this is my injustice <laughs> and, right. and, it, and it becomes a, it, it morphs into something that involves excluding other people well cheer us up eric we've had enough misery about <laughs> anger i think everyone will agree you uh, mark your fellow author myself our audience that anger is a generally a bad thing not always a bad thing i guess it can be cathartic in a personal yeah. sense but the, this ubiquitous social, political, economic anger is really troubling and is verging increasingly on violence. You begin your book with a, a Churchill quote that I actually hadn't heard of before. Uh, he, he said, uh, a man is about as big as the things that make him angry, which I assume means that Churchill was arguing that big men aren't angry. How are we going to reduce anger? How are we going to turn everyone into a big man in the 21st century or a big woman? Yeah. Um, so how do we all become big, big persons? Let's put it like that. I guess, the, well, the conclusion that we draw is that the, this, these distinctions are actually very, very helpful between public and private anger. The private anger and stress tells us something is very wrong at, 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 a, at a kind of fundamental microeconomic level that we need to tackle. And the, the public expressions of anger, we need to parse. We need to separate this tribal energy from this sense of injustice. And the smart, the intelligent way to harness these reactions productively is effectively to create a, we need a politics that taps into this sense of injustice, but, in a, but has a, a coherent, simple, cross-partisan set of ideas that say, this is something that can motivate you politically. So you are right to be, I think there are three things that people are absolutely right to be angry about, okay? One is extremes in inequality. It's almost self-evident that if we could make the world less unequal, it would be a better world. So, so extremes of inequality need to be tackled. Our, our growth needs to be sustainable, right? We cannot ignore environmental degradation or, or to do so would be criminal. So it is right to be angry about that. And it is also right to be angry and, and deem unacceptable the human suffering caused by recessions. And, and to me, and this is probably, you know, I'm an economist ultimately, is I do view this largely. This is the area where I think ideas and idea generators have completely let us down because we should have a handful of cross-partisan simple and effective answers to those three questions. And if we do, we can build a politics that is a lot more productive. And the solution to those three are not just technocratic. I know in your book, you're, you seem to be slightly critical of Macron and his style of European technocracy. Is that fair? 
Yeah, well, the, what, the thing I think is, you know, Mark doesn't like the word policy, and I have some sympathy with him. He, he prefers to think of it as rearranging the furniture. Um, and, and my view is that, and one of the things we try to achieve is before we even thought about, you know, the, the what is to be done question, we said, what is the measure of a good set of policies? So what does a good policy look like? Well, the first thing is it's got to have an effect. I mean, if, if it doesn't answer the problem, it's pointless. Um, the second thing is it's got to be simple, right? I mean, it's, if it is to motivate people, I have to, you have to be able to explain it to people. And the third thing is, if it's partisan, it stands less chance of, be, of being implemented, and it, it stands a high chance of getting repealed, right? So, so those were the kind of three hurdles we set ourselves. And that's which, what requires creativity. It requires uh, breaking taboos, thinking creatively, and ultimately having and, and ultimately having courage to do some unconventional things. And we think there is a set of ideas which have been in the making over the last 10 years or so, which there need, we need to build a consensus around, and they could genuinely make, it, make a difference to people's lives, because ultimately that is the purpose of politics, if it is to escape pure tribalism. Perhaps not only do we need a new politics, but we need a new kind of democracy. You're from Ireland um, originally, Eric. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts on these citizen assemblies which are being uh, pioneered in Ireland, ways of bringing people into political discourse and managing their anger, uh, mixing their citizen engagement with the authority of experts? Is that another way to harness anger in the 21st century? Well, I think, yeah, I'm all in favor of experimenting with the process of decision making. I mean, certainly the Citizens Assembly can be very clever ways, for example, of, of, of you know, as alternatives to referenda or in setting referendum questions. And in the Irish case, the Citizens Assembly was used very, very astutely and productively. But I think there's a deeper problem. And this is where this is my pushback. There's a lot of people across the world who, who kind of want this sort of who just say, why can't why don't we have more centrist politicians who are effective? And, you know, we need sort of more common sense and, and, and less radicalism and less extremism. And my concern there is, is that centrism can't be a go, can't be an end in itself. Right. I mean, and, and there's been they just don't have any ideas. So where I would criticize, in a sense, the the thinking, those responsible for generating ideas is there has been no coherent and effective answer to wealth inequality, environmental degradation, and recessions. Right? Every time recession strikes, uh, everyone's thrown into panic and they try and work out what are we gonna do? And every, every country goes off and tries different things and it's panic stations. Despite, you know, a pandemic is not predictable, recessions are predictable. Why on earth are we relying on a monetary and fiscal system that dates back hundreds of years um, we need a we we need a really simple and effective overhaul of how we deal with recessions. And there are ideas out there. They don't require left wing, right wing, or centrists. They require courage because they're new, <laughs> right? But and, and in a way, the populations at the moment have more courage than their politicians. Um, and I think that's the challenge that's being thrown out there: is they're saying do something that actually changes our lives in a productive way, but you're not doing anything. 
Agronomics, of course, is calling for people to do something. Everyone should read it. It's a really, uh, it's a really engaging read, a short read, something that I think everyone should read in our age of anger. Uh, Eric, to continue thinking along those lines of addressing these three global crises in a in a contemplative way, rather than making people yeah. angry, what should people be reading while they're locked at home still during the virus crisis? Well, there's an. I mean, I, I I think I would highly recommend if you want to read an economics book, I would highly recommend Stephanie Kelton's The Deficit Myth, um, which I've certainly enjoyed immensely. I don't agree with Stephanie on everything, but most of the areas of dif- disagreement are are pretty trivial. And, yeah, I think and Steph- the- Stephanie is actually. Uh, I interviewed her for my How to Fix Democracy show, which. Uh, your co-author is also on, so I'm very familiar right. with her work, and and certainly it's a bestseller at the moment. So it's an yeah, important. Yeah, I book. think she's done a terrific job of pedagogy to to make economics accessible, um, and and it's and she's deeply perceptive, um, and I think on on the whole issue of, of of running deficits and what we can do to to change things, that's a tremendously good read. Um, the, here's the thing. I mean, I would, I've been reading, I said this to you before, I've been reading The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin, uh, largely because it's a book I feel I should have read and I've never got around to reading. And so lockdown, for whatever reason, uh, I had it on my bookshelf and I took it down and I thought, I'm going to read this. Um, and it's fascinating because species other than humans get angry, which is intriguing. Um, so it's not a... It, it, it isn't an aggrandizing emotion or instinct, right? It is a pretty base instinct. Uh, but I'm really enjoying it as well because uh, I think I think I'm not gonna 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 steal the story. But if you, I think anyone who reads the Origin of Species will be surprised by it. I think our preconceptions as to what it's about and how it's written, certainly mine, uh, have been changed by reading it. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.